0: consciousness serves a larger mystery see when we identify with ego consciousness we've lost you know so much of the game we've lost nearly all of it because what we're talking about right now right consciousness would serve the ongoing process the unfolding process of
1: one's life hello everybody and welcome back to the chasing consciousness podcast So, today we have the fascinating job of trying to get to grips with Jung's concept of the collective unconscious. Now, I've always loved Jung um, because I think his ideas can just offer a really brilliant framework in which to maximize our mental health and to use life's challenges to, to harvest meaningful lessons for us individually, and also just to navigate the subjective experience of being alive. But this is a science podcast, so um, we do want to get clear on what's just a useful idea and what is actually scientifically proven. And Jung was really shy to speak about scientifically unprovable ideas because he was a rigorous academic. But as his career progressed, he was encouraged more and more to elaborate on the tools he was using with his patients and as we'll discuss today, he, he felt there was a huge value in acknowledging the active role of what lies just outside of the sphere of testable knowledge, rather than just dismissing it as non-existent. So I am so, so happy today to have Jungian analyst Dr. Monica Wickman with us uh, to help locate this threshold between these two very different fields of knowledge, and also to explain in detail what the collective unconscious actually is, as Jung described it. Monica is the author of Alchemy and the Rebirth of Consciousness, and she received her PhD in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology, and then she deepened her knowledge of Jungian analysis at the Jung von Franz Center for Depth Psychology in Zurich. She is an expert on topics including the anima mundi and environmental issues of our time, archetypal phenomena surrounding death, dreams, active imagination, and alchemy. Wickman's work with the dying um, culminates in a research project on dreams of the dying at UC San Diego Medical Center, which is the foundation of her current manuscript, Alchemy of Life, Death, and the Wedding Veil. I have literally wanted to talk about Jung to a serious specialist forever, so I just can't wait to get into this. So without further ado, let's go. Dr. Monica Wickman, welcome to Chasing Consciousness, and thank you so much for taking the time out to join us all the way from California. How are you?
0: Good, Freddie. Glad to be with you.
1: Oh, it's a great, great pleasure. Before we get into today's main theme about the collective unconscious of, of Carl Jung, I always like to ask my guests about the big burning questions that sort of moved their soul, if you like, when they were just coming into consciousness in the, in the sort of time of adolescence and that may or may not have led in some way to, up to their adult work. What were those big questions for you? And, and who knows, have you managed to answer any of them?
0: that's a good, really good question. It gets to the mythos under any life and every life. And I appreciate being asked the question because it makes me reflect on it. Um, And two things come up that uh, from childhood that I remember very keenly that when I look at the arc of my life were informative. Um, And one was uh, actually in grade school. In grade school, I had a, a cyst on my wrist and benign, and my parents decided to have me taken to the hospital to have surgery. So to get it off and uh, and that went fine and all was well. But on the way to the hospital, uh, a woman uh, died in the car next to us on the road. And I, as a little tiny child was watching her uh, die and it, it had a huge, huge impact on me. Uh, and then I, when we got to the hospital, um, the reality of life and death suddenly was extremely real for me. And, uh, I remember also a teacher who had given me a book to take with me to the hospital because it was days of recovery in those days in the hospital. Not so now, but I had the book, uh, that was um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table with me as a, a, a child. And I remember reading that and dreaming about it and being very touched, uh, deeply and the world had changed when I came back home. So that, that was one very important event. And when I look at the arc of my life and how it informed me, uh, it, my life uh, ended up being about uh, the, the border of life and death and research on life and death. And I've done quite a bit of research on the dreams of the dying and uh, the phenomenon uh, of uh, near-death experiences and uh, the work with dreams and illness. So that, that, that early life event really informed uh, the rest of my life and my research. Um, and I'm sure we'll be getting into some of those questions uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, around the nature of reality today that that led into. Mm-hmm. And the other event, the other event was quite simple. i I remember um, being probably eleven and stepping outside into the forest on my way to school with a little bag of books. And I remember a really big thought that came from somewhere around the nature of books. And it was uh, it felt like uh, a Part of the psyche somehow that was making a comment on the schoolgirl carrying the books. Uh, and it was about um, uh it was a, it was a conflict between two sides of self in that moment. And I heard them both very clearly and I have lived both of these sides very strongly since then. And one voice was like, Oh, the value of books and how much I love to learn. And I was, you know, adoring what was in my little book satchel and happy to be heading for the bus stop. Uh, And the other part of me was in the revelation of nature with the pine forest and the beauty of the world. And it was saying, Oh, it's too bad. Every human soul couldn't get in mind, couldn't get everything just from its own experience. and, And it wouldn't have to read, what's in books mm. uh and that both and <laughs> has stayed with me um, for the rest of my life and my work it's it's very much underlies my work so the burning question how do we unite these two sides of our own uh inner experiences um and then absolutely the world of knowledge and wisdom that comes through the exchange of ideas
1: so monica what we're doing in this first series is we are laying out the current scientific territory for the listeners and for me um, trying to work out the way mind together with body gives us knowledge about the world and indeed how it lies to us, um, sometimes to maintain our existing worldview. For example, we've spoken with Mike Gazzaniga about his famous uh, split-brain research and the left brain interpreter, which is this part of the brain that, that creates reasonable explanations for things based on past experience, sadly, without Letting us know that it's only a hypothesis based on past experience and not an absolute truth. And this really reminded me of one of your best known essays, uh, which I just love the name. It's called Refining Your Inner Bullshit Detector. So before we get into the collective unconscious and death and and your other work, tell us the wonderful story of how you arrived to this title and what exactly you were trying to, to get at with this text. <laughs>
0: It's so funny that you got drawn to that and, it, and I do appreciate that you did. Uh, the, way, the way it happened to me is that I was uh, working on my uh, uh, analytic training in a Swiss institute um, and, uh, and was really enjoying the company of everybody and I knew I was about to give a talk and uh, I decided to playfully throw it into the talk and see if I could get the Swiss to also laugh with me, um, which which happened eventually in the day from doing what I did. So basically... I was looking at the importance of a reflective attitude in the psyche of each of us, and the reflective attitude that, as you will be getting into, I'm sure, uh, well, today, the reflective attitude that can pick up on, uh, you know, pieces of the shadow, the persona, what's in the field around one, uh, when we can tune into a more complex re- sense of what's going on. And so, so the talks were basically in in this vein anyway. So mine was as well, and and so it was this big, uh, thorough essay around the value of the reflective function and uh, and how it makes for wholeness and both within the psyche and also interpersonally, interpsychically uh, and, and also in the surroundings with nature, You know, looking at how this this makes for more wholeness and and the humility that it takes to do that because it means the ego's not in charge and our fixed attitudes and the things we identify with um, all have to be held circumspect. So I was trying to get a little humor dropped into it, a little bit of Hermes into our mix, so I decided in the middle of this uh, rather sober serious uh, conversation about the importance of the reflective function to uh, drop in that everybody who you know walked away of individuation would need an IBSD and and I waited for them to try to figure out what that would mean and then of course I wrote it up on the board an inner bullshit detector Um, uh, as a way to just be playful about this because as we all know if we don't have an inner bullshit detector, then there's no way to move into wholeness, and and um, and also we leave that work to the people around us, uh, also uh, that they become part of our inner bullshit detector. <laughs> uh, kind of wisdom uh, as well. So uh, anyway, what was fun about it was that they they, they kind of got it a little bit then, but by the time we went out to dinner that night, it became a, a game at the table with paper airplanes and humor and delight and the interval detector challenging each other. And so we got more into the playful spirit because Hermes can be, and, and this is also the work with the shadow gets so serious. So to turn it around and know we have it all in common and start to play with it makes the psyche much more agile. So that's where that came from.
1: Oh, brilliant. Um, and what were you... I mean, what's the relevance of that to what you were arguing in terms of reflectivity, the importance of that for wholeness? Why is it so important to recognize when we're being lazy, why we're, when we're, we're tricking ourselves or putting off having to think about something, maybe because it's, it's a bit challenging? Why is it so crucial for reflectivity? What were you arguing? Well,
0: exactly, especially um, with your... Uh... The title of the work you're doing on chasing consciousness. Um, it fits right there because the key for consciousness to grow is that can we find an agile attitude to know that we don't know mm. and uh, and that in any attitude we get into, it can get fixed. Uh, and as soon as we're in a fixed attitude, then we know we'll have lost the energy with the psyche. The psyche works in polarity. Uh, and as soon as we think we know something, or as soon as we're identified with something, uh, then we're in a conscious attitude that usually will dry out or get lost or lazy, lose the energy of the psyche, it needs the polarity. And so it needs the tension of the opposites. Uh, And and when it gets that back, it's from seeing something of the shadow or something that someone else picks up that they reflect on that might be in our field or a reminder from someone else. For example, you mentioned laziness. Someone checks in with us about how we're doing with a certain project and heightens our state to wake up again. The ego ego, uh, likes to hide out. It's a tricky little uh, part of the psyche. Uh, It is only one complex in the psyche, but it's a very important one. So to work with ego consciousness that it learns to become agile uh, is all the difference in the world. Otherwise, um, we end up with a lot of unlived life. Everyone ends up with a lot of unlived life because the ego has a way to go into stasis or uh, a static identity it identifies with certain ways of being and then the energy of life can be lost and also the fullness of our life and what we're really called to we can lose track of and and it's and the ego's job in a way to notice when that's happened mm. uh, when the energy in the psyche's gone down it's in stasis uh, um, yeah and, and in a place of uh, lack of life energy or motivation or emotionality and all of the energies that uh, make up the the vitality of life when we lose that then we need we need to reflect and get back in sync with where polarity is operating and definitely the not knowing attitude is 100 percent it that is Mm. the only way that we end up relating to the bigger psyche is through that i don't know and that's it is the humility uh jung talks about that he talks about uh, the humility to read the signs and signals he also speaks about, which also makes me laugh, Anyway, he's giving a very sober discussion about uh, the descent, which is a part where consciousness becomes renewed. He's looking at how does consciousness get renewed, and he's speaking about uh, uh, the process of a psychological descent, which means that we have to end up really getting into our lives and finding out how the suffering in our lives is, you know, uh, calling us to have an awakening. and And he really respects that, you know, these pieces of suffering end up really creating an opening for us to grow. So the ego's humility to enter into where one may be also suffering, the ego can't defend against uh, it, or it will lose uh, the the life vitality. So getting into that helps. So in the middle of this big long quote of his, it's very sober about the descent. He says um, that the water of life will seep away from us when when the ego gets into stasis, that even the water of life seeps away. And although we may not know, others do. Mm. and uh, so that's very playful too on his part that you know we can ego can even trick itself into not knowing it needs to renew itself and other people around us will be helpful and help us see
1: so mm. well there's so much in there and i think we're definitely we're going to have to define a few bits and bobs because this is the first episode on you and we're going to have to to come back to some of those ideas and, and unpack them a bit so let's just get down to nuts and bolts um What was Jung describing when he coined this term, the collective unconscious? And what evidence is there that it is actually a real thing, as far as we can say that anything in the psyche is real? Um, And just feel free to introduce and give us a quick definition of any other Jungian ideas, whether it be archetypes or individuation, or you mentioned the shadow that you may need to explain the collective unconscious. Just feel free to go slowly, Monica, because there's a lot and they're all quite interconnected concepts, aren't they?
0: Yes, they are. They deeply are. Uh, well, when we think about uh, Jung and Freud at the time, both tremendous pioneers, both of great value, uh, Uh, the the Freudian world uh, ended up really discovering a lot about the personal unconscious and Jung's journey took him and his research and his life took him into a real discovery of the collective unconscious. And so your attitude that you mentioned earlier for this most simple way into this, I think is about, you know, it's all that we don't know. Uh, And so if we start with that and I'll give you some definitions and even places in Jung's work where it comes out, but we start with how much we don't know about life. You know, we don't know where we came from before we were born, and we don't know how the mystery of life comes into being born, and we don't know what happens at death. We are we are, we hang in unprecedented uncertainty. Actually, Jung speaks to this fact, and if we can bear that fact, uh, then uh, the awareness uh, of ego consciousness can open up to the depths of the psyche, and the depths of uh, consciousness, and the collective unconscious. Uh, it ends up. Um, being really, uh, as Jung speaks about, the the life of um, uh, the human soul, as he calls it. And we'll define soul here shortly, too, for your listeners, because that word can sometimes be problematic for people. Great it's the problem. definition, and I've got a definition of how Jung describes it as one of the complexes in the psyche and what its role is. So we can... We can define it as well. So uh, anyway, what he uh, is getting at with the material on the collective unconscious, it's like the, the um, ocean uh, of underneath the human psyche of all that we do not know. But uh, it erupts into our world that's known. So uh, he speaks about the imperishable world erupts into our transitory world. So into the time-space world, things will erupt and happen where we realize, my gosh, where is that coming from? It doesn't obey the laws of time-space, uh, and it has um, a different uh, profound wisdom in it. So the the forces of the psyche, he ended up seeing um, as archetypes, and the the and I'll try to speak to that too. The uh, collective unconscious uh, houses these archetypes and they inform our lives and probably the best way is to give an example Mm. and then we'll get back to something of Jung um so and I know you had picked an example that you were interested in speaking about that Jung ran into uh around the person who um had the breakdown did you want to mention that one and then I'll comment on it?
1: Jung's leading example that he used when he was speaking about this was the phenomenon um of the paranoid schizophrenic patient who sees the sun's dangling phallus. And I think I would probably feel a bit crazy myself. I'd probably call the doctor if I started having these images of large phallic objects dangling from the sun. And the motion of this giant phallus dangling from the sun caused the wind to blow on the earth. Help, help. (laughs) What's it all about?
0: Okay, well, well Jung ends up finding the mythological parallel uh, to that, and this is where, and, and so this is a good example of how Jung ended up realizing as he's working with people who were very on the edge, uh, he was working at the Berzoli Clinic. He uh, actually lived above the clinic uh, with his wife, and um, he would be attending to these people night and day. So so let's just picture Young Psyche for a second. There's the overworld. He's living above the Berzoli Clinic and working with these people who are uh, being housed for very serious madness. And so so this is one of the people that he runs into. And, and when he hears that uh, story, he, he then remembers a myth that parallels it exactly. Uh, that has the reality of uh, the sun with the phallus and and the wind. And when he hears that, his consciousness has to make a real stretch. How can this man in the Rizzoli Clinic be saying something uh, that he's seeing in a state of madness that actually connects to uh, something deeper in the psyche that shows up in mythology? So he began watching how uh, and the people that he was working with when they would crack uh, that there there were contents would come erupt into their transitory reality of their consciousness and they'd be speaking things that would actually have deep mythological parallels so that got his consciousness going around what could this possibly be that's expressing itself. He began to notice, uh, as he studied mythology with everything he had, he began to notice that um, people's thoughts and emotions and patterns, ways of communicating, uh, and then also when uh, something might erupt into consciousness as well, that he began to see these patterns in nature that were timeless and ageless, and that they were they were tracked and paralleled in myths, and even what the myths would be working out, you could see the consciousness of a human being trying to work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, this, this kind of parallel uh, began to become also a healing function for him because he began to realize that people were connecting to a strata of consciousness that he termed the collective unconscious uh, because inside it's the repository of, of the human psyche throughout time and the imagination that's built up through time that's come out in myths, it's come out in world religions, it's come out in scientific worldviews. views. Uh, the, the collective unconscious you know, houses these patterns. And, and so it's it's pattern recognition, honestly, that you're looking for when you start working with the collective unconscious.
1: Is there a connection here between the word pattern and the word archetype? Um,
0: archetype's interesting. It means imprint and to imprint into. Um, so it has, uh, if we go into the ideology of the word and sort of the energy behind it, it also means uh, that something you know is moving into the time space world and it is would make an imprint into matter it would it would Mm. come into matter so archetype literally tracks that process of uh being something that is, uh, exists in uh, uh, the timeless uh, world and it moves into the temporal world. It makes an imprint into. So if we take the example of my early childhood, death and the question about life and death and uh, the Knights of the Round Table and the Grail Legend, I mean, all of that made an imprint into me as a very small child. That would have been like an archetype that erupted in mm-hmm. my small life. And mm-hmm. if, if anyone looks into your early life, you'll see them too. Uh, and then the
1: archetypal pattern informs a life. So, um, so the, my question about the evidence for this being a real thing in inverted commas is is almost irrelevant, isn't it? Because the archetype, the the, the the world of archetypes, the world of patterns, the world of the collective unconscious, it appears, is in a world beyond time and space. It, it is in some, as you put it, repository that erupts into reality. So the idea of it being a real thing is presumably the wrong way of thinking about this.
0: <laughs> yes, I, well, I I appreciate the question. Uh, it's more of experiencing it, I think, and, uh, and also identifying and watching it. So this would get us to also... Uh, Our lenses of perception and our worldview, you know, how when uh, when we see these patterns shift and move, you know, what are we involved in, for example, collectively right now, we obviously the last two years, what we've witnessed worldwide you know we have something that's erupting into con- the conscious world we have a pandemic you know the whole world is changing around what's erupting it's not just a pandemic that's erupted clearly i mean the whole way everything's changing uh, around uh, people staying home using zoom technology uh, has come in stronger uh, the the change processes uh, in consciousness uh, often Show these archetypes in motion, uh, because transformation in our lives happens when these archetypal fields do move into consciousness. They ask something of us; they erupt, and we need we have to make somehow a peace with them. For example, uh, you know when you when you track periods of time uh, in different uh, mythologies. Uh, In India, for example, they talk about the yugas and the 2,000-year cycle of time. So time can be played with and looked at from so many dimensions, right? So... In India, they, they have for a long, long time looked at 2,000-year cycles. It's called the precession of the equinox. Jung looked into this uh, deeply, too, and saw that when we moved into the next 2,000-year era, which we are in now, uh, that the archetype of Uranus Prometheus would be part of what would be erupting into our world. And it would be a 2,000-year cycle change. Uh, and we're right on that cusp. Jung died when it was beginning, and we're in it. Uh, and uh, technology is a very big piece of that archetype. So we've been watching that erupt. I mean, think about everyone walking around with cell phones now. And 10 years ago, where were we? Uh, you know, and then what's happened with the pandemic. So part of an archetype that's current that we see erupting absolutely is technology. And you think about what we're talking about with cyborgs going into outer space, having people be half human, half computer. I mean, we're the, the archetype right now uh, is... Uh, deeply erupting so, so that we know that we can, we can then try to attune to what is this archetype about and how are we going to work with it? How are we going to humanize it? You know, what are the, the the difficulties?
1: How far did Jung go in trying to prove, in adverted commas, the existence of the collective unconscious? Because I know that he did have some discussions with skeptics. I mean, do you agree with them? Do you agree with what I just said, that, that basically this is an unscientific concept because it's just completely untestable because it is beyond space and time.
0: Well, that would lead me to wanting to pick up something to read to you that I think is really uh, pretty juicy of Jung. So he's talking about, well, first of all, from Jung's point of view, uh, to see the world only from a time-space dimension uh, and a, a time-space consciousness is, is, is uh, limited. And it gives us, as he says, a one-sided view of the world. Mm. So if we look at the nature of reality through only time-space, he's saying that's a limited view of the world. It is a view of the world and we need it, clearly, because we have to operate in time-space. Um, but what he's saying is that we have to really consider how one-sided that is. Uh, and that the the nature of the psyche uh, is trying to help consciousness learn how to relate to time space, see it more as relative, and also see what's beyond time space, and even learn how to uh, um, respect and understand and experience uh, states of consciousness that are not part of time space. So, but let me let me just read you a quote of his that I think lands it pretty well that I think you'll enjoy. Um, so. Um, He says, limitation in in space and time is such an overwhelming reality that when you suddenly have an experience where it's annulled, you don't have an experience of time-space reality. I'll talk about what that looks like here in a second, Um, uh, that that we should take these experiences of the highest theoretical significance. So when the time-space experience uh, has something uh, that annuls it and you're not in a time-space experience, that we should take our highest theoretical uh, research work to it and and find incredible theoretical significance in what's going on. This annulling factor, he says, would be the psyche, since space-time would attach to it at its most a relative and conditioned reality. And he goes on further to say, under certain conditions, psyche could even break through the barrier of space and time precisely because of a quality essential to it its relative trans and transtemporal nature. Hmm. So Jung's discovery of the collective unconscious and of his work, uh, it takes us to where these two uh, ways of uh, experiencing the world come together, the time-space, the bound in time-space, and then uh, the trans-temporal, trans um, Now, my work uh, has been on... Um, uh, death and dying, and you see this a lot uh, with the nature of consciousness with death and dying. But it's not the only place you see it. Um, no. uh, this uh, this uh, type of consciousness can step in, in in all kinds of other ways, and we and we need it to. But I'll, I'll save that for later in our
1: discussion. Well, yeah, there's some some very specific questions I have about that. So just to sort of try and put this one to bed, the in terms of the arguments, shall we say the uh, the debates that Jung had during his life with the skeptics, did he try and and argue for this being a, a reality? He's certainly calling for more research, this, the, the highest theoretical uh, work we need to do at that level. But surely science isn't the right kind of theoretical work to be doing there because of its untestability. Did he have those discussions with his skeptics?
0: Oh, yeah, well yes, um, and yet Jung speaks to the fact that science can evolve in a way that it absolutely can hold these questions and find, find a way to uh, investigate research and, and make more discoveries. And he was always for more empirical evidence, always for more empirical evidence. Uh, so I wouldn't represent him correctly if I didn't say that. So he'd, he'd welcome the skeptics and say, we'll do some research and, and let's see.
1: And yeah. that brings us to this all important question about the limits of science, which we, we, we keep coming back to on the podcast the existence of things that just are beyond scientific method's scope. So Jung said science is an attempt to get at the truth and its rule is never to assert more than one can prove within reasonable or defensible limits. So, right, that makes perfect sense. That's the scientific method. But he also said that it was crucial to not be blind to the fact that scientific hypotheses are human veils and curtains concealing the abysmal darkness of the unknowable.
0: Yes.
1: Now, perhaps I should just repeat that. So it was crucial not to be blind to the fact that scientific hypotheses are human veils and curtains concealing the abysmal darkness of the unknowable. So my question for you is, what in your opinion did Jung believe was this limit? Where does this threshold lie? What was beyond the limit of the knowable? <laughs> and does this field beyond the knowable, does that invalidate his theory of the collective unconscious?
0: Well, what, what's really amazing, of course, is that uh, scientists throughout time have relied on dreams. Uh, it, it, Einstein did. Uh, you, you look at many important discoveries that changed our worldview and will continue to. Uh, but it does not come from the logical, rational mind. Uh, It comes to a logical, rational mind, uh, but it's not coming from the logical, rational mind. Einstein, in all that hard work he was doing, you know, his thinking intuition, you know, was reaching far and wide and working on things, but eventually it's dreams that opened. If you see his dreams, it's, it's very striking. So this is where uh, you know, Jung is speaking about that dreams and intimations from the collective unconscious, you know, can erupt into the conscious. So how can the logical self track uh, and investigate and find, you know, meaning or no meaning inside what it discovers uh, that may come up in dreams? So your question links very much to the research I did. So if you don't mind, I'm going to step please, into that. In a second. And, and,
1: too, yeah.
0: and give you a quote of Jung's too. Um, uh, so, um Bonfranc, uh Marie-Louise von Franz, of course, who worked with Jung and was, in, I think, of her as uh, uh, really his right hand uh, and uh, did so much for Jung in psychology, also way beyond his death.
1: And um, you met her just before her death, is that right?
0: Yes, yes. yeah. yeah and she And she, uh, I, I also had um, a very important connection to her through dreams. And also, uh, she uh, gave me some advice about my research. And I modeled it after her book um on dreams and death uh which i can show the picture of for your viewers um, so it's here it's, whoops you can see it. it's on dreams and death
1: um by right. really, we'll we- make sure that gets into the show notes Monica, yeah. good.
0: good and in here uh there's a very important piece um uh, that will uh lead into uh, this question around science and so I, i'm going to take a couple steps to get in here um so What you said around the evolution, uh, you know, of of, of, what were you talking about science and how will we work with the limitations of science? What Jung is looking at is that the nature of consciousness itself will change uh, as it investigates. So the capacity to look in and investigate is also changing. And we know that when we look at quantum mechanics and we look at physics, we know the very way that we investigate has changed. Now, uh, if you can hang on with me, Freddie, here, it's a, an important piece. It goes back to William Blake. Um, Blake says, the eye that alters, alters all. The eye that alters, alters all. Um, so what he's getting at is a fundamental mystery that the way we perceive the nature of reality, uh, it, you know, it changes the nature of reality, right? Says so we know this very well. The baggage
1: we we bring to the table, as it were.
0: Absolutely. Well, absolutely, and I appreciate you saying that, Freddie, because that that quote is true on every level of our lives. You know, it's true interpersonally, uh, all the time uh, and so if we look at a person with a certain something that is in us a projection for example or a thought or a judgment or something strange and we're looking at a person through that lens you know that can cause a ripple in the field for someone they can you know feel it they they can be responding to it without knowing what's going on they can even enact it uh, so so the eye that alters alters all and so to be responsive in the field of all our relationships to be aware of what what am i looking at this person with or at this question with. So so this is behind the evolution of the psyche and it's behind the evolution of science. I mean, it goes back in world mythology, way back to uh, the beginning of time with the Nordic tradition. So if you don't mind, now we're with a a myth that comes out of the collective unconscious that I think is also looking at the evolution uh, from the very beginning. So in the days before language uh, in the Nordic world, uh, the Norns, the three Norns, the three goddesses of fate, uh, they had a lot of uh, power and they had their, their hero Odin uh, with them. And Odin had to uh, basically deal with these three Norns. And one of the things that happens to him is that they, they end up uh, having to exact a sacrifice from him. And the sacrifice is one of his eyes. So, he has, he's hung upside down on the world tree, and his eye is then put into the well of Mimir. Um, and basically, out of this comes the very first uh, written language, the very first written language appears. So, they they then give him the norn, the norns give him uh, the runes, so that he has these signs and symbols to work with. This becomes the beginning of written language, and think about how much consciousness changes with written language. Yeah, and, and world, uh, world traditions everywhere have this. The Hopi, very close to me here, the Hopi, the Navajo, they have myths also at the beginning of time and the beginning of the way symbolizing fields began and language began. Uh, there's, there's, there are many myths uh, that are in the Navajo and Hopi nation around uh, that when human beings get out of balance... Uh, There can come a presence that shows up in the psyche and in their myths uh, that helps to rebalance it so humans will see differently. Mm. Um, And this is, one of them comes from a Navajo myth about Grandmother Spider, uh, that she helps human beings at a time when they get encapsulated and they forget their connection on the web of creation, they forget what the Sioux call metakweasen, all our relatives. The humans get dissociated and encapsulated and they're no longer in sync with nature. And uh, this is such an ache in the psyche of the Navajo people. uh, They saw that uh, there was an archetypal presence that responded. And in their myth, um, it's Grandmother Spider sees the blindness of humans and when and when she sees this she then leaps from the stars and she weaves a web of interconnection again from humans to stars to plants to stones and out of that comes an interrelated field again and humans wake up and see the world differently they they no longer see the world through the the eye it uh, that they're doing of objectification they're back into the I vow they see and feel the world differently so so this question of consciousness and how we see uh, things and, and how we hear things, um, this was very much at the heart of what Jung's work most centrally was about. He said uh, that his work was uh, at the bottom was one of, uh, he saw of learning to hear and to see in ever new ways. So the help of dreams, and, and, and certainly science can evolve this way too and does, that we will see and hear and, and, and perceive in new ways. And the way that happens is from not knowing and leaning with our curiosity into the field like like for Einstein to to say well okay I'm sorry everyone who came before me Copernicus Galileo you know he looks at all the scientists before him and the nature of reality and he says well maybe it's not that way maybe there's more unknown here than we know and his curiosity leans into the field and his deep intelligence and then he gathers hints and, and creative process and through intuition and more he then changes our whole worldview so his his perception changes and our perception changes behind him and our collective worldview changes. So science has to take a look at the perceiving lens and, and the lenses through which we perceive. This is a big piece in depth psychology that goes on that we, we have to watch for. But I think it absolutely is behind science. So um, I've mm-hmm. got a piece now. This comes from von Franz's uh, work on dreams and death. And um, she's looking at uh, Jung's new hypothesis. Um, and this hypothesis, that uh, she's talking about last chapter of her book, um, says that what we call physical energy and psychic energy today could in the last analysis be two aspects of one and the same energy. So again, physical and psychic energy today could in the last analysis be aspects of, of, uh, one and the same energy. So now I'm going to read a little piece that Jung has in one of his letters that comes next. And this gets into the research on dreams and death. And I'll make a couple comments from my own research, if that sounds good. Um, So he says, it might be that the psyche should be understood as uh, unextended intensity and not as a body moving with time. One might assume the psyche gradually rising from minute extensity to infinite intensity, transcending, for instance, the velocity of light and thus irrealizing the body at death. So, so I know that's a lot for listeners, but basically what they're looking at is that time-space is not what we think and that uh, the the connection of uh, something that extends itself into our incarnated world also ex- you know, moves on into and into the speed of light and beyond the speed of light uh, into the world of intensity. So extensity into time-space and intensity into uh, the the world beyond uh, matter. Um, and then there is a dream uh, that, see, and dreams give us, you know, an ex, it, you know, hints, and they bring us questions and such. Um, and this will be, I think, an important piece to, to drop in here. Uh, my own experience, as I mentioned, that started, you know, with that moment as a child and the encounter with death, it led later in my life uh, to um, uh, my own research uh, through my own experience uh that then later later led to the doctoral research with the 1500 dreams of the dying but the personal experience uh came when i had stage four ovarian cancer and was working with the psyche trying to get well and in that time period um at one point i was given two weeks to live and i'm not going to get into the whole of that here it's more than you all would need but the piece i want to mention just is that uh That the psyche erupted into the transitory world, the the imperishable world, as Jung calls it, erupted into my time-space world, changed my life, and it changed my uh, body, and it, it helped me become well. So, in fact, it went from you have two weeks to live to this experience, and then I had no sign of cancer. So, how do we scientifically explain that? (laughs) Mm. And how can can we? And, of course, the doctors at the time working with me, uh, one of them quit the practice of medicine and decided to do something else. Another one said, oh, spontaneous remission. Now, is that really as far as we're going to go with science to look into this phenomenon? You know, what what happens to people with physical symptoms uh, and life and death experiences and near-death experiences where then people can? And this is something that should be investigated and researched well, you know, and thoroughly uh, with, you know, good scientific rigor. I'm, I'm all for that. But these are the questions, you know, that Monica, matter. Can
1: you, can you tell us more about the transformational experience that, 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 as he put it spontaneously put you into spontaneous remission right just tell us what was happening internally what if, if it's yeah. not too personal sure,
0: sure. no no I, i'd be happy to do that i i i especially in this context that we're we're looking at because it's how do we take these events that erupt into our lives that that don't make sense from the rational world uh, time, space, rationality, and the normal logic wouldn't know what to do with this. And so that's fine that we wouldn't, and I'm with you. I mean, For my scientific mind, what would I say? But the scientific mind has to grow and stretch to do research on this and, and comprehend the world in a new way when these sort of things erupt. No matter what one's theory or ideas might be, this ought to be gathering our attention. And this is what Jung was saying in that earlier quote, that this ought to be where our, our you know, uh, our research m- researching minds want to go is on these borders where the time space and something unimaginable or unknowable or undescribable, or we can't grasp from the time space, this, the, that that edge ought to grab our attention. It's grabbed my
1: attention. And you said the edge science needs to include all phenomena. Otherwise it's incomplete. It's, it's just as exactly. simple as that.
0: Absolutely. Then it stays within its static reconfirmation of itself and it's just limited. It's always has to be out on the margins, trying to see what new ways, uh, the consciousness is, is opening to something bigger than what it knows. Cause we're in a constant revelation of something bigger than what we know. We know that at least when we look back through time and science, we know <laughs> the evolution mm-hmm. of science, it's a constant, uh, spiral into incorporating more from these borderland places of what we don't know. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so in, um, in my experience, uh, uh, I, I was very lucky to um, have had uh, the um, fate of working uh, in Jungian analysis and my life had gotten very stuck. Uh, and I ended up getting very sick. I uh, ended up with stage four ovarian cancer. And, um, you know, staying low to the ground about this, uh, the dreams were super helpful for trying to work with the symptoms. Part of what Jung's work does is it says that also symptoms that come into time space can be worked through uh, by looking at the, the symbols that they, that are the symbolic nature of them, like to take them into what's called the symbolizing field to try to understand them. So, uh, this makes me want to just mention that if you really look at the value of Jung's work, really the value of Jung's work in the world today, it would be the work with the symbolizing field. Mm. And, and so and it, this leads into what happened to me because I was taught the symbolizing field. Um, so in psychology, uh, Piaget looked at uh, the way that uh, mental life develops in a child through pre-operational, uh, on a, through operational formal operations. He's looking at how the nature of the capacity in a tiny child evolves, but he stops at a certain point and it doesn't evolve any further. And he thinks he doesn't add to it, but Jung's work on, on the capacity to think symbolically. This is the evolution of the psyche from my point of view. This is where Jung's work has evolved the psyche. And if our world picked it up, we would step into a, a new ways, also being able to do scientific research. Mm. So for me, this pins down to me very particular in the, st- in the question you asked. So for me, Freddie, when I uh, was 24 and I had this terrible crisis with cancer, an analyst was teaching me how to work with symbols and dreams that would come up. And and the nature of the symbols and the dreams were absolutely speaking to the nature of the illness that was going on in me, where it came from, early life dynamics archetypes that were involved in it i mean the the hints and the clues the humble hints and the clues that come up through working with dreams and when our lives are really suffering is very strong so oftentimes we have the need to turn to the symbolizing field grow something new when we're in a time of suffering um
1: can you, and can you think of a, a strong clear example for the listeners there of a, of a symbol yes. that came up in one of those dreams
0: Well, sure. I mean, I, I mean, one thing that would probably be striking to listeners, just uh, those who haven't had an experience like this, some people have, and this won't be that big of a deal, but um, my dreams knew before I knew I had cancer, they knew that I had cancer and they would, they spoke it to me very, very clearly. Uh, The, uh, the, I was ovarian cancer. I did have a hysterectomy dreams that were showing that coming. So, you know, something that is beyond the time space, wisdom uh, that that can also intuit and knows things. So it can feel us in the Tao as things are changing and give symbols and such. So that that was one for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Another uh, set of symbols that came was uh, a very profound uh, help around uh, the way that my early life psychology had gotten tied up between my mother and father. Dream symbols that would show it playing out, show like a stage and the way that that got wound up and how I got wound up into it. Mm -hmm. And that the cancer was trying to uh, actually um, uh, unwind it. It It's trying to unwind an early life pattern. And even the voice of the cancer would be shown in a dream talking to me about what it needed. So, you know, this is, this is really important around the capacity for the psyche to give us the hints and clues. And, and uh, Jung speaks about this, that, you know, uh, that, that symptoms actually are the place where these archetypes become lodged. So if you know how to work symbolically and you're working with the personal unconscious and the archetypal unconscious, you, you then can unwind these things. You can make peace with and appease uh, you know, what nature's doing and, and your life can go on and heal. At best, Jungian work teaches this way of, of learning a healing process, of uh, learning a relationship to the, one's own being and, one, and the collective unconscious as well.
1: And it's interesting that a different part of the body, this isn't the first time I've heard this, that different parts of the body can represent different problems in your personal life. So for example, you might get throat cancer, because you're struggling to find your voice in the world, you're struggling to find your, you know, your expression, or you might get intestinal cancer, because you're struggling to digest your pain, or you're struggling to digest what's happened to you. You know, you know, that could sound to a to a sort of, material uh, scientist, that could sound completely irrelevant but from from the point of view of psychology that's incredibly meaningful because you know the the, the mind and the body are so so deeply connected
0: exactly Exactly. And then when we do that, we lend dignity to the body, that it also has great wisdom, and it holds a lot that is unconscious to us. And our relationship to the unconscious can often come through what Jung called the somatic unconscious, how the body can hold and know things. So right. the rest. Rational-
1: for the listeners, what does the word somatic mean?
0: Somatic. So, um, yes, good point. Um, so somatic, soma, so the body, uh, the, 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 where, we, where we experience things uh, physically. Um, And uh, to attune to to the body is to help our imagination drop into our experience of our bodies. Mm. And also, uh, um, now listen, what's interesting is that there's an intersection here, of course. This can be new to Western listeners, but it's not new to people who have any exposure to uh, many traditions of the East. Uh, and, And everywhere that acupuncture comes from is Completely from this, the meridians of the bodies that have names, the intelligence that lives in the body, and, and uh, the activation of healing that can come through working through the psyche, soma, uh, cranial sacral work, uh, osteopaths work right out of this this field of interaction. Where so 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 see from our rational minds, we think, oh yeah, that's a little strange. But to so many you know millions and millions of people around the world, it's not strange at all.
1: Well, and a wonderful image of the cancer telling you what it needs. It's almost like this idea that, you know, we see the, the illness as the enemy. But in a way, I've always seen illness as a call to action. It's like saying, look, you know, this is the result of your your attitude and your behavior. And in a way, it's, it's a blessing because it sort of says, hey, look, over here, you know, this is where you need to work. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. There was a feminine presence that spoke to me very clearly about how it had gotten into the situation and what it needed to come out of it. So it, you know, the, the intelligence of the life force within us can speak to the symptoms about what it would need. And so, so here we are, we're really seeing it in action here, Freddie. Consciousness serves a larger mystery. See, when we identify with ego consciousness, we've lost, you know, so much of the game we've lost nearly all of it because what we're talking about right now right consciousness would serve the ongoing process the unfolding process of one's life what, what, you know, the meaning of life and the wellness of life and what wants to be lived and brought to fruition in the life. So clearly I was thrown onto the edge of the unknown in, in this time. And I know you asked about, you know, what happened. So here I'd learned about the symbolizing field and I was 24 Now I hadn't read a lot of myth at all. Um, I was 24 when I first got cancer and I got into a Jungian analysis and then, uh, four years later of working with it uh, on the edge the entire time, but working with symbols, they thought I would die within a few months and I didn't, but I kept thinking that, Oh, I I would get well. I did. I really sensed, Oh my gosh, through what the the medicine of what was coming from the dreams and such, the feeling was I was really going to make it. So when I suddenly got incredibly sick and only had two weeks to live, That was a huge shock to me, huge shock. It was like, oh my God. And I had to literally, uh, I literally had to come to terms with reality because I couldn't sleep. I, uh, I mean, I couldn't stay awake. I was always sleeping. I couldn't eat my life hit my life force was just going fast. I, I, and I, and I had to really face that fact. And when they gave me the two week prognosis, two different doctors did. Um, my then partner at the time, we drove out into the desert on the edge of the Hopi and Navajo nation. Cause I said, he said, what do you want to do? I said, let's just drive all night into New Mexico. So we got out uh, under the stars in the back of our pickup truck and he fell asleep. And I then uh, ended up um, really railing against, uh, the reality of what was going down. I realized that, boy, if I was going to do it, it was going to be this moment. So, because I couldn't, I couldn't stay awake and I knew I had, you know, I had to come to terms with what was going on. So I started with, you know, uh, just a, I don't know how much of this Freddie you will be wanting to get into, but I, I, I started with, uh, you know, really Speaking to the unconscious and speaking to the collective unconscious about it, um, I knew enough from the symbolizing field to do that. This is what Jung talked about. The ego consciousness needs to make a bridge. It needs to penetrate in and also, you know, let the, the world of the unknown know where the ego stands. So I was doing that. I was saying my life has so much to live. What are you thinking? I, I, my world is not, you know, my life is not done. So anyway, I got into this interact this interaction and then I realized uh, you know, I, I could do this or that. I was thinking about the things I could continue to do, yoga, you know, eating nothing but vegetables, you know, all that. And I realized, Monica, you can't even stay awake. That's not reality. And so, as soon as I face that, as soon as I face the fact of dying, uh, and I really, I was just in there facing it then, I, I, I finally did what's so important in the psyche for all of us is when we surrender to something bigger. Now, this is inside AA. This is inside so many traditions of how we get well. That we need some, you know, we we there's some place where the ego. It's not submission, uh, it, it is a trust, surrender. Perhaps. Yes, yes, it's a trust that's in it. It's a trust surrender. And at that moment, I, I did just let, I just let go, and I said, okay, I can't control this. I'm, I'm not in control. I am not in control of living and dying.
1: Oh, that's a big <laughs> one, isn't it? Accepting yeah. not being in control.
0: Yeah, and wanting to wanting to live and fighting with all your might to live and absolutely realizing you've done all you can do and now there's no control. It's all surrender. And uh but what happened is the symbolizing field showed up in front of me. I was sitting up in the back of the pickup, starry sky, my partner was sleeping, my dog was sleeping at my feet. Um, and I was sitting up in the back of the truck. And then I, I could perceive because I'd been working with active imagination. I could perceive the symbolizing field right in front of me, communicating with me. And I just stayed with that. And I, I felt very much a, a giant scarab beetle that appeared in front of me uh, that, uh, and a message that came with it. Monica, you must make peace with the spirit of this creature. And it went down into the earth, and it was like a dung beetle that was eating up everything and taking it down into uh, just its oblivion, you know, it back into matter, back into nature, back into the totality. And I was part of that. And any identity I had, anything I thought I was, it took me deep into uh, a, an absolute other state of consciousness. Uh, and and what I assumed, of course, I assumed, okay, Monica, you're dying, and and this is the experience of dying, and it's bliss. You know, you just let go of everything. You're not you're not who, you're not who you thought you were, <laughs> and you're you're now entered the oneness with all things, and and you're just in the oneness, and that's what's happening. And a little voice in me said, "Oh, if only I could come out of this long enough to tell my partner that dying is bliss, if I could just." <laughs> Come out of this to tell them it's bliss you know that part still wanting some some place in it but a series of events unfolded in that visionary state that culminated in an experience of the light body now many people report this and i'm not special many people report this exact same pattern it's a healing pattern in the psyche and that's what i think is really important the white light experience uh see now this is on that continuum of matter and spirit that we just were looking at from jung and von franz's work right so uh, the extended into matter and the time space consciousness that we have in our ordinary life. And then events in life that will take us into a non-ordinary state and an experience uh, of the psyche that's larger. And, and sometimes not always, but sometimes light is part of that part of a healing experience, part of a healing process in near death research. It's a very prominent part uh, of what happens to people. It's one of the commonalities that comes. This is Raymond Moody's work and many others. Uh, there are a number of researchers in England too, who, uh, recently are able to uh, revalidate moody's work um but these experiences of light so why i wanted to get to it is because this gets into jung's sense about time space and beyond time space so how i had an experience of the visionary world and then this experience of the light body and then the next day had no cancer at all the next day, the next day no cancer the at all next I, I could stay, i could stay awake i had no headaches I could actually eat something. I couldn't eat for the longest time. And, and I didn't think anything of it. I like, oh my God, I actually feel okay. You know, I can't believe it. But I, I absolutely thought that what had happened meant I'm dying and I was surprised that I woke up. So, so, it so then.
1: It sound like quite a traditional, uh, well, I should say traditional, but, but, but quite, quite a textbook, mystical experience. But to come out of a mystical experience with that, level of symptomology that level of toxicity in the body completely removed okay a religious person would call that a miracle but (laughs) there's got to be a rational way of explaining that and just before we take a break um how with the benefit of retrospect and all your research what do you think Happened, I know this is such a difficult question,
0: but rationality can hold it and logic can hold it because logic can also absolutely. stretch into the margins of the unknown. Well, it happened, didn't it? Yeah. So, and this is why, uh, starting to try to imagine into just like Einstein did what's going on when a phenomenon like that happens. I mean, you know, I am a phenomenologist, I like to stay with the phenomenon itself too. And Jung absolutely was a phenomenologist, and well, that's the, the, the phenomen- only
1: data we have,
0: so. Exactly. <laughs> exactly and that's good science and that's good science what we do with the phenomenon or how we imagine how we we want to try to hold it. it's a whole other story but we have to face the phenomenon when the imperishable world erupts into the transitory world as Jung says that this is our area of research and interest what's going on when a phenomenon like that happens um so so that's why I read the piece about von Franz and Jung because they're trying to imagine the time-space and the non-time-space as deeply connected and one and the same thing. That matter, matter and and psychic energy wherever that white light experience came from. Uh, you know that's a psychic intensity that happened. But just like they said, we are, are the, you know somehow our being extends into matter. And I was sick at the time in matter time-space world, sick, dying. Then some event happens that has a psychic intensity to it. Now the ego had to let go to get it. This is super important. It had to totally let go. It had to totally let go to to let that phenomenon happen. And however we think about that phenomenon, it happened. And then in time-space the body as well, but the, the medical results, the next, you know, I was supposed to go get tests the next day at another hospital. The tests came out. They were sky high on the scale for ovarian cancer. It's a CA 125. The next day it was below normal. The doctor you know called me and said, go to another hospital and take another test because there's something wrong with the test. I didn't think anything of it. I thought he was right. So I go to take another test. It, it came back a three, then it came back a one. Now normal is eight to 35. I was below. Normal. And he said, something's wrong with the test. Come back to San Diego. So I come back to San Diego, uh, and they they goof and give me a pregnancy test, which was funny because I think that was meaningful. I think it was pregnant with new life. But then the next test they did, it came back again below normal. And at that point, that's when the doctors had to say something happened, and you didn't die, and you're here, and you didn't go into the hospital and have intraperitoneal chemotherapy for you know a couple of weeks to extend your life either. Something else happened, and now you're well. And it's many years uh, since that moment in time. So just the phenomenon of it. Oh, we, we ought to be looking at from whatever lens of perspective. Precisely. That's where our eyes have to learn to see in some new
1: way. Yeah. So, Monica, we're coming up to the hour. So I think it's time that we take a little break. Um, sure. I mean, we could literally talk about that all day. So I think we're, let's move on from that extraordinary experience. But what a an amazing example of what we're talking about. I mean, phenomenal.
0: I was hoping for you. That's why I wanted to bring it up because you're looking at time, space and the non, the local and the non-local. And how do we think about local and non-local? We don't know how to think about local and non-local. And that's, and I know you I know your podcast is doing this. So I wanted to do something to bring it forward.
1: Well, I'm finding think- a non-dual explanation. Um, yeah. you know, exactly. Listeners must go back to Sue Blackmore, our first episode uh, this thing where she she's quite a skeptic but she's, she's just saying we need to find a non-dual explanation here because you know the, uh, otherwise they can't be coexisting in the same space and it sounds yeah. from your experience that there is a very clear dual uh, uh, what's the word a uh, bi-directionality where we're finding not only the mind uh, uh, the matter influencing the mind but then As you said, only when we let go, interestingly, does the mind have that ability to come back and completely influence matter. Extraordinary.
0: I'm I'm really with you about non-duality, but but how we get out of non-duality is to hold it as polarity.
1: Right. That we're going to have to come back to. Let's come back. We're going we're going to start with that actually.
0: We are speaking about the non-duality
1: uh, issue. Absolutely, so, we were speaking about non-duality and maybe finish what you wanted to say about that before I bring it back to this, this other question.
0: Okay, well, I just thought uh, that the mention of non-duality is so important uh, around uh, uh, psyche and soma, around our sense of matter and the body, not to think of it as concrete, but to know that it's part of the symbolizing field. Uh, and when we do that, we're out of looking at things with split consciousness, uh, as if matters only matter, as if we know what it is, we take it for granted, uh, matter's a mystery. And when we look at matter as a mystery, the body or otherwise, uh, obviously this has happened in physics, then suddenly we're not in duality anymore. We're in uh, you know, the capacity to see uh, psyche both has its uh, incarnated dimension and also its Non-local, non-spatial dimension. So mm. the time-space world and the non-time-space world are. There's an energy field that that joins them both, and so I think that that's where we get to on the edge of science, and that's why I mentioned the peace of mind because it's a phenomenon where that happened mm. happens to many people, mm. but where we get some phenomenon coming in that is actually healing that duality split.
1: Um, I want to come back to the collective unconscious. I want to come back to Jung suggesting that we, we, we know this field of symbols. And I just wanted to ask for you as a therapist, how does that knowledge of the macro collective kind yeah. of level, how does that, how do you, in your work, how do you translate that to the individual lens? What tools do you use? What recommendations do you give to your, to your clients? Sure.
0: Well, one of the things that happens in the field of analysis is that, um, if the analyst has experiences of the non-duality, then they hold a field that that perceives and looks at and contains a process that's very open to the mystery of whatever's going on. So right away, there's an attitude of of non-judgment and also knowing that one doesn't have the handle and that a mystery is here. Let's look at the patterns and let's look at them with fresh eyes and let's catch the hints that are coming to us through the way the symbolizing field works. Mm. So... Um, that'll be in the interactive field completely. Uh, There's therapists, analysts working definitely with all the patterns that happen in transference, countertransference. So the interactive field of relationship, you can feel it there. Uh, you're definitely working with dreams, uh, the capacity for people to bring in their dreams and for you to attune to the symbols, images, and the flow, and also the questions that come up and uh, the way things are being addressed by something larger that that is inside the dream wisdom. So, so partly what that does uh, when you work with your dreams and, and, uh, and all, uh, you begin to, the ego begins to respect that there's an authority deeper than the ego. And the experience of that just keeps deepening, uh, deepening and deepening. And so in a a Jungian analysis, the ego learns a relationship with the unconscious, and uh, and that relationship itself uh, is um, the whole goal. So the, the, it's a felt relationship that grows over time. So the ego doesn't have its normal coordinates by the end of an analysis. It, didn't, it doesn't have the same coordinates it came in with. It feels, sees, and perceives, and moves to the world differently based on how it grew inside that vessel. And so the work with dreams, active imagination, for some analysts is very important. It is for me. Uh, I think one of the biggest gifts Jung gave us is uh, heading us back to relationship to the imagination um, in the Blakeian sense. Uh, and uh, so... So working with active imagination, uh, you basically, you know, for your listeners who don't know, uh, you you learn how to uh, get into a, a, a place of inquiry. It's a place of inquiry uh, where you drop back in uh, with the imagination and you can pick up a, something that might've happened in a dream. Or you can pick up your connection in your body to a symptom or someplace, something you're feeling. You can start with anything as the original source piece of an active imagination. And then you, you literally hold a space where you get to watch and be present with what wants to unfold in the interactive field with the imagination. So uh, that that process can become very alive. So if you've got a shadow figure, for example, who shows up in your dream and your analyst says to you, you know, that is uh, something you ought to work with an active imagination, the person might sit down and picture, okay, I just, you know, met... The, my shadow bill on the in that dream and my shadow oh was my like-
1: i'm sorry to stop you here but just because we haven't uh, done a show about the shadow we're going to do a whole oh. show in the next series when you talk about the shadow very very in in a phrase what what are we talking about there
0: great so just like any time something stands in, uh, in the solar light it casts a shadow So the ego is connected to a solar presence and and we can feel it's it's like that. It it, it holds um, connection to consciousness. So consciousness itself casts a shadow and the shadow will show up in dreams. The shadow can be what consciousness doesn't know because consciousness becomes one-sided. So however consciousness is one-sided, it actually needs its shadow. It's a bit like Peter Pan. You got to sew the shadow onto the feet so the ego knows what the shadow is. And then when we do that, it gets way more lively. Um, So, and, and the shadow is always showing New sides. Now Jung says a very strange quote. He says eighty percent of what we need is in the shadow, so the shadow is valuable. Now sometimes the shadow, you know, is is you know the awareness around it is valuable. But sometimes there's the shadow as something that we actually need. We actually need. So for example, if someone has a very rigid consciousness and they're very moralistic and judgmental and and, and tight, uh, their shadow might appear as a tricky, playful presence that they don't trust. But that tricky, playful presence is something that they actually need to get closer to, an attitude that they need to make friends with and get out of the rigidity. That'd be an example of, of the shadow being valuable.
1: And then yeah. we're back to your idea of polarity as well, in the sense yeah. that what we always need is is the thing that we've got, the, the opposite of the thing we've got too much of already. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. This is a very, very central in, in Jungian work too, because the the <laughs> there's a, a joke about the the, the number one Jungian sin at which we all do every day is our one-sidedness. And then, we, and so, so, you know, you're one-sided. So, so like, for example, all of Jung's typology, when he looks at the, you know, uh, personality typology, it's very good for tracking our one-sidedness. Uh, and, and so, so we know no matter what we're doing, the shadow is something to account for uh, and very important, very important. Um, yeah. So for me, I'm an intuitive and I was giving a talk for a uh, the, Washington D.C. group, and we were all having a good time doing this. And while while we were doing that, my secretary, who takes care of all the detail work of my universe, who so I rely on hugely, she's listening in her home to that that you know the voice is speaking, and she's doing all the hard work of the shadow. You know, and when she told me what she was doing, I just said, My gosh, there you are, Marie. You're carrying the shadow to my doing my thing in the world. You're helping me with the sensation things that are underneath my strong intuition. So, you know, when we honor the people who help us with our shadow, it helps our totality too. Mm-hmm. And that happens in all kinds of ways in our lives. Thinking types, you can, you can thank the feeling types, <laughs> feeling types. You can thank the thinking types, you know, intuitives you think. So, so it's interpersonal too. Some people will be hired to help you with your shadow, um, <laughs> to develop it, you know, to grow it, to make your world more balanced, you'll drive the people around you crazy. So sometimes people come into therapy for exactly that, you know, like a you know marriage problem, for example, a relationship problem. Um, and they need to get more whole, so not driving their marriage partner nuts, um, so the shadow is very valuable.
1: And listeners, we will be going into a, a lot more depth about that. And uh, I, I shall sh- certainly be asking Monica's advice on who's the best person to, uh, to who's done the most research on that. But Monica, I interrupted you there. You were speaking about the presence of shadow figures in dreams.
0: Oh yes, so so dreams, active imagination. Um, you want to get related to, and you know, inside the imaginal field, you want to get related to what comes in, and the ego learns to relate, and the ego, and also the, these contents from the unconscious, also change. So let's say you have a really nasty shadow, just a hideous. Thing, you know, and, and you don't want to, you can't imagine incorporating it. So sometimes, you know, you you end up working with the imagination and asking, you know, for something in the imaginal field to help with that shadow figure, and then something transforms. And when it moves in the imaginal, then we also take it back home and we can feel how that changes something inside us. The big piece on active imagination uh, when we work with it is uh, is incorporating it, is integrating it uh, and watching our lives change from doing it von um, Franz, see this. This gets into the nature of the psyche too. Uh, for the practical reason that we want people to be able to catch their dreams or do act imagination is because they're learning to grow a center in the in the psyche that's not just the ego. It's what's called the self. It's the, this larger center uh, that has profound uh, wisdom and holds the the human personality in a very deep way. Jung, of course, met up with Philemon. That would be a picture in the Red Book of Jung making contact with the wisdom presence that lives deep in the psyche. And the ego can develop through these means to get more energetically connected to uh, this presence. And this creates a new center in the psyche. So the ego is not so alone, not relying on just its ways of perceiving, and as soon as it's relying on its ways of perceiving, it knows where to go in the psyche to get more whole. So uh, there's much more to all of this, but in terms of practical pieces, um, the interactive field definitely,
1: uh, and then working with dreams. Um, Sorry to mention, it's a kind of polarity thing again, isn't it? It's that it seems that this the process of healing or bringing into awareness seems to be stimulated, uh, that, that, that we need a dynamism, or to, we need something to come in and mix things up. You know, you mentioned the trickster, uh, you know, you mentioned the shadow. It's like, really, we just need something to come in and kind of upset the inertia and get the ball rolling again. It doesn't really matter where or in what direction, as long as something's moved, something's in a state of change again. Why is change... And dynamism, so important to the revealing of of what we need to bring into consciousness.
0: It's very perfect, perfect question. Um, there's a wonderful book called The Order Disorder Paradox that was written by Nathan Schwartz-Salant, The Order Disorder Paradox. And he's looking very clearly in a lot of ways, not just not just in analytical work, but in the world at large, and with change at large, why we need what you're talking about. I um, mean, he's looking at
1: the fact a catalyst, that... Catalyst. I think that's the word I was looking for Is a catalyst, something to just get things started.
0: Yeah, and, and chaos is usually the catalyst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chaos is the catalyst. And he, and so things go into chaos. So we try to keep things in a homeostasis, you know, uh and and, and this is the way of uh, I think, uh, parts of the ego that want security. I'm and in so control. They kind of I'm in it. control, obviously. There you go. <laughs> but insane, keep it known, keep it okay, you know, and the way that consciousness does that, it makes it rote, it makes things dry out, there's no life force, you know, relationships die, all sorts of things happen in that field that are just wicked. And we all go through it because it's the nature of the psyche, that the ego will try to make things be so secure, it locks out the flow. And, and, and things to change have to go into some form of chaos. The order and disorder Order are again a polarity it has to go into disorder the chaos in order to come into a new order and how we hold chaos actually how we learn to relate to chaos as oh this is an important moment we want to you know make room for the chaos understand something's trying to change so as soon as we see chaos it's it's awareness uh, compassion knowing there's some danger on board of course too but nonetheless let's create a field to to hold this this form of chaos in a life.
1: So- What advice would you give to a, to a client who was seeing that coming into their lives? Maybe they were a bit scared, like you talked about holding chaos. I mean, that sounds a lot easier in in theory than it was in practice.
0: Well, I agree. And and I don't recommend always doing that alone, not at all. Uh, hmm. there, uh, sometimes when there are elements of chaos that erupt to really be in the presence of another person who can stay steady and really knows how to hold a field for chaos and knows how to transform it. Um, and there are a lot of mediums that do this uh, and a lot of people that know how to do this. Um, but it takes a larger consciousness and a larger attitude toward the chaos. That alone can help calm down the anxiety that gets going. When people get a big catalytic change process, they can get pockets of anxiety so deep it can really scare them. Of course, of course, because the ego doesn't know how to orient. So this is where we need mentors. This is be you know in ancient traditions. They have had rituals and, you know, right leaders passage. Yeah, exactly. Rites of passage, right. So we so in a way, analytical work is a major vessel that people often find for this. But there are other ones. Uh Stangroff's breath work I find to be extremely helpful
1: Ooh, with sort of We're gonna of- talk about that in a minute. Can't wait.
0: I do want to mention too when we mentioned about polarity uh, that working through the body, the body is absolutely also the this. We mentioned it earlier, but it's super important because it's not just in the imagination, uh, it, it's the imagination coming in through anything that is also physicalized. So, for example, Anything in our lives that feels stuck, uh, something in the body that's responding, you, you, literally the imagination learns to weave through all things. And then we live with the imagination. We live fluidly. This is what I was mentioning about symbolic thinking. We learn to think symbolically. Any time something happens, you know, the raven cries out in the backyard and you hear it in a certain way you know, you feel it. So you feel a resonance with it and you wonder, well, wow, that's, wow that, that impacts me. You know, and later in the day, something else comes in that you feel connects. You know, you're always open to what's expressing itself and you know, not knowing. Uh, and then finding out later in in the day what it may be uh, that mm-hmm. happens often. And the natural world is a big, prominent place for this. So we, we relate to the whole of the world uh, through the symbolic field um, and, and the interconnectedness in the symbolic field. Um, mm-hmm. So, so analysis tries to help a person lear- get into that and learn it um, and also then live it and take it in the world. And I think our environment, uh, our natural environment, it just needs our psyches to evolve so much because if we do, then how we feel the natural world is 100% different. We're, we're not objectifying it into an it. It's an I-thou. All of nature is sacred. All of nature has the divine spark. We, we end up feeling in sync with the whole totality.
1: Hmm. Uh, so that's one. So, Monica, I want to move on to an idea that I find very, very touching, and we're going to be looking into in a bit more detail in the next in the next series, which is David Bohm's idea of the implicate and, and explicate order. Um, and this idea that there's a sort of template present in all things. So this idea of the collective unconscious really uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, when you look at sort of, you know, insects being able to regrow entire limbs and things like this, you get this sort of idea that somehow there is some kind of implicate map from which life and matter is is sort of coming into uh, space and time. So I just wondered if, if we accept the evidence that the collective con- unconscious exists, um, we're still left with these difficult questions as to where the information of this collective unconscious or this this implicate order if you like is actually stored what what are your thoughts about that it's such a silly idea really isn't it if space and time are kind of numinations and they're, they're their own dimensions that we're asking where that information is stored is 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 a is a really a bit of a silly question but
0: all, not at all. Uh, Freddie, I think it's absolutely the question. Uh, like all, all of these manifest worlds, where are they coming from? And uh truly, I mean, this is like an ultimate cosmic question you're asking, mm, really. It
1: is you know, the big the, one, isn't it?
0: Yeah, the implicate, explicate order, the collective unconscious, the people have called it different terms through time, the Tao, you know, you know, what is birthing uh, form and what is receiving forms back? Uh this is the giant mystery, isn't it? Um
1: there's a uh, quote from the Tao Te Ching, isn't there, that just, just came jumping in, but I haven't got the rest of the quote. Maybe you remember it. It's the Tao that reveals.
0: The line that I think of from the Tao Te Ching that I think you were looking for, it certainly fits our conversation, um, you know, is the Tao you can name is not the Tao
1: exactly right there you go that's implicate and explicate again isn't it
0: absolutely absolutely that's why it's kind of a mysterious felt sense you know and that we want to get connected to the origin see i think where your question goes is with the collective unconscious and where it was all this coming from you know there there's some to some place some some a place is a funny way to say it but we feel an origin, perhaps. An origin yeah the, yeah the origin definitely uh and and so and this is very important in in the psyche too, uh, because getting connected to the source, to the origin of life, to the pattern of where this is all coming from can happen when we heal. We're aligning with the patterns that the, and and it's so that's why it's not the up to the ego to design it. We're we're literally looking at the implicate order of things and the way the psyche actually is, and how can we align with it and go with it and participate with it, uh, and so so it, it is. Uh, it's so so much the right question, um, and I. I have to say too, you know, there are times in our lives where we just feel it very strongly and it happens in many lives. You'd be going along thinking you're working on something and then suddenly all the change just rises up under you and, and your life just radically can change. Mm-hmm. People who work on a certain issue in their life and then suddenly, oh my gosh, suddenly like it rises up underneath, like the somehow their work from consciousness and something from the implicate order align and a whole new phase of life comes out of them. Um I think about women that I know who have done mothering, you know, for their what feels like their entire life and then suddenly the kids are gone uh, and then all those hopes or dreams they might have wanted for the unlived life that, and then suddenly you know out, and you think how could this woman who just had all those children devoted her whole soul to this for 20 some odd years suddenly in a place of emptiness and then suddenly she's actually grabbing a hold of something else from deep inside it's not an ego agenda I'm not going to make myself do xyz but suddenly the life force rises up and and what, what aligns her with life she might go through emptiness uh, feeling of meaninglessness and not even knowing why she's living, you know, and searching around in that. And then from searching in that, what is the origin in her, her nature, where, where is their life force energy that could reinform the life? That, that we we individually also try to get back connected to that implicate order. I, I find it a good way to feel into life and look into life. Um, you know, I think logic, uh, you know, our logic, it has a place, but the trick is that what if the nature of the universe is more like a song? then we'd be, you know, our logic is studying the music of the world, right? You, you know, so so we, I think we have to be open to what is the nature of reality when we use logic. And, and implicate order for me feels like it's, it's, you can feel it as almost like music that's inside all things.
1: Well, and that's um, a beautiful analogy. And we're going to be speaking with Ian McGilchrist. And one of the analogies he uses, he says, you know, a piece of music is, of course, made up of lots of notes but you don't understand nor experience nor feel the piece of music by seeing the total sum of all the notes. And I think, you know, there's there's, there's an importance here with that kind of analogy, isn't it? That, that the the more subjective experience, the to, the total experience, the context, the wider context, the perspective, if you like, is so much more than just the sum of its parts. And I think it's a very, very important learning, beautiful analogy there. Now, I want to come back to your work, Monica, because we haven't spoken enough about that. We we touched on it with Jung's abysmal darkness of the unknowable. Um, obviously, abysmal meaning a large abyss, not abysmal as it's come to be used in exactly. my country, at least, as something who's abysmal. It's just terrible. But obviously, I think he's using this in a much more mystical and, and, and rather um, wondrous sense, this idea of this abysmal darkness. It's just infinite. It gets totally empty. You talk about this in your 2005 book, Pregnant Darkness, Alchemy, and the Rebirth of Consciousness. How do you look at this, I call it a soup, this sort of primordial dark soup of the unknown in that book? And and how do you relate it to consciousness in that book?
0: Well, in that book, I'm uh, wanting to help create bridges uh, between the conscious world and that abysmal depth and show how people can get related to it in a way that you get a relationship and it brings fruit. Um, And depth psychology at its finest, that's what it's doing. It's helping us deal with the unprecedented uncertainty by, by the ego expanding and being able more to tolerate it. Uh, it, it, that's part of it for sure. Um, but also watching uh, in what wants to grow in our relationship to the darkness. Now, the darkness in our lives comes in many forms, too. Um, and so usually it comes on the edge of a personal problem that happens in our lives. So the Jung speaks about this as, as, as a descent. You, the ego has to submit to dealing with something mythologically from the underworld. You have to deal with something uh, that's unknown. And, and suffer means to carry from below. So suffering has a role in our transformation if we turn toward it, not suffering forever like masochism can do, but, but suffering has a role because it's where our attention is caught. And if we turn toward it, uh, then the psyche can grow something new. And the suffering's connected to what we don't know and to the darkness. And then, then mysteries get revealed. Uh, we become uh, deeper and more acquainted with the depths, uh, not as terrified of the depths. We, we learn to trust our archetypal patterns of transformation and healing if we can get aligned with that. But it usually involves some place in our lives initially. Uh, where there's been some something, a difficulty we can't solve that's going on.
1: Um, I imagine Joseph Campbell must have been very influenced by Jung.
0: Oh, I think so very much, very much. Uh, question is, too, was he influenced by von Franz because she wrote a whole book about the hero's journey, uh, and it was published in German. Uh, and his book parallels it remarkably. I've, I've wondered that through the years if he happened to have seen that before he put it out.
1: Well, yeah, quite art- often we see similar ideas emerging at the same time, sort of again out of possibly some kind of some kind of evolutionary conscious field. Uh, you know, quite yes. simultaneously.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the implicate order, isn't it? That's the implicate order. Just, yeah, it's coming up in many people at the same time. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Freddie. Yes. So so to bring the boon back, I like that you brought Campbell in there because a big piece about the hero's journey, heroine's journey, is after you've had contact with the unconscious, uh, the goal of the journey is to bring that back into daily life, not stay lost in the unconscious or in the bliss body or in terror or anything that happens to you while you're dealing with the unconscious, but to catch the relational field, the gifts that come out of it, and have that return right back into your life. Uh, and and, and the, the this is a very big difference um, in the Western alchemical model uh, that Jung relied on, uh, that you come back into the red world of daily life with your wholeness and you live it here in the incarnate world. You bring your insights in here and this world becomes richer. Mm. Uh, so that's a very important piece. I'm glad you brought in Joseph Campbell. It brings that into our listeners.
1: Well, for listeners who, who may not know much about what we're talking about, we've got a whole show with the brilliant Dr. Carla Stang, uh, talking about uh, the hero's journey, and and you know she's also going to be uh, pulling it apart a little bit and seeing where where maybe that's a slightly slightly limited. Um, so, is there anything you wanted to add about this pregnant? It's such a strong image of the pregnant darkness, like it's just ready to give birth to yes. to to what you need to know. Yes. I mean, again, we're back to sort of duality and monism, aren't we? It's like in order to have the polarity, in order you have to have something for your imagination to push into, as you put it. I love that image as well of pushing into the unknown. Um, you know, we really do need that contrast between what's known and unknown in order to have a polarity to, to work with.
0: I'm with you about the the wording "pregnant darkness." This is a, also when the ego gets oriented to just those words, and then the reality of it that the darkness turned toward. If you turn toward it, and it turned towards you, and Jung says this, you know, that the unconscious, you know, shows the face that you turn toward it. If you turn toward the unconscious to and into the mystery, into the unknown, uh, you know, with curiosity, interest, and uh, and holding a field for it, getting a relationship to it, it does become pregnant with new life the new life comes right out of this. And this also goes in to the ancient myths uh, throughout Egypt that, you know, the sun God renews itself by going through the underworld, the, the new light comes out of the darkness. Uh, it has to descend through the processes of the unknown to bring up a new light. And it's constantly descending into the unknown in the darkness and bringing up the new light. So how do we participate in our lives with that cycle? Uh, it, it, sometimes in our lives, it's very big ways uh, in our lives where we have to take a giant descent, but it's also every moment, every moment, we say I don't know, and then where would the new light be coming from? That kind of attitude uh, around what I what do I not know? What might be in the field? What's trying to emerge? You know, what, you know what's trying you know to come forth. That that is the pregnancy out of the unconscious, it's an attitude too that we live with. Um, new
1: fierce potential. It's just so so loaded with possibility, yep. and the idea that oh we don't know, uh, we don't we can't know about this. Therefore, it doesn't exist. It's just ignoring such a a vast amount of potential knowledge and possibility. I, I, I find yeah. that quite an extraordinary worldview, but we're pushing back against that on this show. So, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully uh, we're going to be helping with that. Monica, holotropic breathing. I noticed that you practice it. I noticed you, you use it on your courses. You even wrote a book about it in 2013, for those who are interested, um, Exploring Holotropic Breathing, it's called. And we're going to be covering this in detail, hopefully with Stan himself, Stan Groff, who, who created this, uh, this technique. Um, but if not with Stan, then with, with some other colleagues who uh, use this with huge, huge efficacy. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Um, how does it work psychologically? Because I the physical bit I can sort of get my head around. As I say, we're going to be doing a whole show on it, so don't worry if we're just touching on this quickly, guys. But but tell us roughly what's happening at a psychological level, and and why it's so useful in the context of the kind of therapies we're talking about. Um,
0: well, I deeply respect Stan and his life. In fact, that he's still with us, too, among the living and generating just an amazing force of nature. Totally amazing. Local
1: legend, of yeah.
0: Uh, really appreciate my dear friend uh, Diane Houg, who's um, been his right hand for over 30 years, and I've worked with her, and no stand through to my friend Diane. The, uh, I have uh, very deeply appreciated uh, holotropic breathwork as a beautiful adjunct to uh, analysis. For some people, it certainly has been very attracted to it as a model. A uh, n- number of pieces of Jung's are in it, but but developed in very rich ways. So the way the field is set, uh, you know, Stan Stan teaches an attitude toward the psyche of what we're talking about that we don't know, but we can create a container for whatever chaos might come up, attend to it, and help it move through to achieve its own wholeness, its own healing. So it's a trust of healing processes at a deep, deep level that came through Stan's soul, definitely, and it transmits through that lineage. Practitioners learn that attitude and how to hold a field um, in in a very, very specific and very careful way. Um, so anyway for those who don't know about it um, you you can in, in group form you come and you have your own mat uh, and you have your eye mask and you have a sitter that sits with you who attends to your process and then there are other professionals that are in the field that come to your aid at any moment and um, there's a beautiful music set that is uh, designed that has an arc to it to activate the psyche and then also release and heal so it activates your imagination it can activate the body and the beauty the beauty of Stan's work is innumerable, but the one I want to start with is just that he, this, the somatic unconscious is deeply honored in that work because the breath itself, you, you're using deep breathing in a specific way of breathing to help uh, activate, you know, what we talked about, the psyche can become static uh, in the time-space world. It moves it into psychic intensity. It, it increases the intensity frequency of the psyche itself. So your capacity for imagination and to attend in the imaginal field with yourself, with your breathing you're able to do that. And people can have uh, channels that come in auditorily. uh, They can come in visually. You can also absolutely get them kinesthetically. So so what wants to catalyze uh, from the unconscious has a place to do it. And you attend to it and you're present to it. You're catching it as it's happening and you're moving through it and breathing through it. And the music subsides at the end. And then the most beautiful part too, is that the masks, you know, you have had your assistants who've helped you through if you got stuck in anything. When you're done, you take off your mask and silently go right to your paper to draw a big mandala that tries to hold in a wholeness way, what your experience has just been. So, active imagination which we recognize from Jung in a new form uh, and absolutely the mandala that something larger that's holding your experience the circle it's an image of the self already Um, and then the capacity to hold on to integrate and value what's come through the Mm. community uh, is very rich Um, i deeply respect that work in front of your listeners who haven't tried that Um, uh, there's the groff transpersonal training they can look up online and find a group Uh, Carrie Sparks now runs that by herself. And Stan has a new invention up his sleeve too around this work in the world in another way. So I appreciate your asking. It's very valuable. And in Jungian work, from my point of view, extremely valuable.
1: Well, Um, it leads into my next question um, about altered states of consciousness because I was really shocked. Um, No, shock isn't the right word. I was really impressed when I did my first session of holotropic breathing of just how much information uh if you you know just i I think information is such a good sort of hold all um term for this kind of stuff that's coming through but you know i was i was reliving stuff from different perspectives you know memories were coming but in a different way um what we're talking about when we go into that kind of state with holotropic breathing is what robert davis or, or abraham Maslow might call a peak experience yes how do you see these various peak experience mystical experiences psychedelic experiences whatever you want to call them fitting into this this rich tapestry of in the context of our conversation um potential offering of symbolic of of symbolic experiences how do you see those fitting in okay
0: well if you don't mind i'm going to read two lines from jung that i think speak to it um right the possible transcendence of time space is of such incalculable import that it should spur the spirit of research to the greatest effort. Mm. So again, possible transcendence of time-space, which we have, we experience in peak experiences, is of such incalculable import that it should spur the spirit of research to the greatest effort. So it's just there that the research ought to be. That's where our curiosity should surely open. Um, and peak experiences I think are on this continuum of psychic energy uh, that we were looking at of extensity and intensity. And sometimes when our lives have become asleep or we don't know the issues that are that are underneath or we just need to catalyze our process, a breathwork experience gives you a very beautiful contained way to have a big catalyzation. It's catalyzing the breath and the group. The community, the wisdom, the holding, the whole of that—it can help catalyze the experience, uh, and then, of course, bringing it back, back into our ordinary lives. Um, the the proof is in <laughs> simply said in the pudding, because again, the proof is how we return to life and live life differently, you know. And and so, peak experiences and how we integrate them and ends up being so important. And often, uh, you know, this is taught in every form. Uh, so. It, it, whether it's, uh, you know, the, through holotrophic breathwork or if someone has a peak experience that may come in some other form, the important thing is how does that change the life? Mm. Uh, and how you stay close to the source that brought it? Because a peak experience, if it's really truly a peak experience, then it, it, it's coming from the origin, the origin of your being. And so, you know, it's a, and you help you know, help you yourself connect to the origin of your being. I like the graph work because you can you can sign up for it. It's contained and you can integrate it. It's good integrative work. And you're not waiting for disaster to happen or cancer or something else. You're 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 literally able to stay you know with your process, feed it what it wants, and 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 get peak experiences. Um, but uh, but sought for their own sake, uh, just to have a peak experience, one has to be careful of because that becomes what I call the AAA club, the archetypal addicts anonymous um uh, the the point isn't to continually get high with peak experiences although i understand the drive in every one of us to have that but it's more to learn how to open the window to that part of the psyche so that we live in relationship with it daily meditation act imagination take us there von franz said um, that the second half of life is to develop the subtle body before we die which means that we peak experiences we don't have to fall asleep and catalyze, we literally learn to live with that energizing field more and more as the center. So it isn't so extreme. It becomes the center. This is thought of in, in many traditions as what's called the subtle body. But that would be a topic for a future conversation.
1: Wow, that, that definitely sounds relevant, doesn't it? But I think the for me, the main concern in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. with this Debate is the increasing popularity of plant mes- medicines, shamanic uh, compounds, um, the, the, the DMT present in ayahuasca uh, and in, in many other variants used by various indigenous peoples around the world. Um, that, as you said, this is becoming a bit of a, a, an addiction because we are so used to using substances as a way of accessing states of mind. And I have many, many friends and colleagues who are finding such incredibly useful uh, effects from this work. And yet I feel that there is some sort of, there becomes a dependency in some way. It's like, oh, I needed that compound. I needed that situation in order to continue my journey of, of unfolding. Whereas it seems to me and whether I rather like the word peak experiences, it's like a peak experience. Obviously, there are troughs, you know, it's like these are one offs, these are not to be sought out, they're not to be expected, you know, your whole life can't be one long peak experience. Um, And if that's what you were looking for, maybe you were doing it for the wrong reason. So I sort of wanted to ask: There is one of my the reasons I'm attracted to holotropic breathing is that it's so natural. It's like the oxygen is the catalyst here, not DMT.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It's oxygen. wisdom held in a community that does not require a substance. And let, let us not forget, of course, the beauty of this is that Stan, who did major LSD research, of course, at Harvard is one of the major researchers, along with my dear friend Ralph Metzner and others. Uh, he he went from that to this model. And and this model, in my mind, is, is so important. And for people who've gotten into so much use of the psychedelics, to step out of that, get into Grof work, And then the next step is, I also like to tell groff people that it's not state dependent on your capacity inside the field of a breathwork session. You can learn with active imagination to live with that field, that symbolizing field every day. And this is the work of von Franz. This is really where my work has gone, and I think many people's has, is how do we court the subtle body, which is the mystery of this, the symbolizing field that helps us be, feel uh, the presence of what we contact in those peak experiences, that it's with us all the time. And it doesn't create, as you so beautifully said, Freddie, the super highs and the super troughs. You know, the bipolarity of the psyche can really get going with a lot of psychedelic use. The opposite then in daily life can often happen. So how do we apply those to daily life and learn a relationship to the imagination that is inside every day? Uh, this is really I think the most important piece and certainly from Jungian work it is the most important
1: piece. Monica as we draw to the close I want to link this back to your mystical experience. Uh, I had no idea about that extraordinary experience that you'd had. And I think it's a wonderful um, a little bit of what we've been talking about, that that happened to come up so beautifully in conjunction to these questions I wanted to ask about mystical experience and peak experience. But coming back to that, mm-hmm. you discovered in the most extraordinary way possible, really, the truth of the work you went on to practice uh, professionally as, a, as an analyst yeah. that what is the what is the importance of mystical experiences of this kind peak experiences of this kind and do we really need an experience of that kind to sort of shake us out of this this inertia this quotidian this 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 block? Or does it not necessarily have to be that extreme? Just how necessary is mystical experience to, um, transformation?
0: Well, I so appreciate your question, Freddie, very much. Uh, it's one that goes on in my household frequently, um, uh, uh, just with the differences among people. Uh, everybody's path's different and the way they're going to be drawn to relationship to the psyche. Do I think that everybody benefits from a relationship to the psyche? Absolutely. How one is called and what is one's fate uh, and how one works with that is, is, is I think all uniquely different. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the, value, uh, the value of mystical experience uh, in some form or fashion, absolutely, I feel it would just, it's the balm that helps the human being because it changes completely the nature of consciousness and it lets consciousness evolve, it brings peace, it brings a sense of uh, meaning, a sense of unity with the world, it it, it gives a place of an energized field uh, uh, from which one can live. So however however one grows that center, that's the issue. I think the problem with psychedelics is I don't see it helping people grow the center in in daily life. If you you leave it there, if you leave it state dependent, it's very problematic. Even if you have reflections on it that are meaningful, I think there has to be a way, an ongoing way that we live with the imagination. That's what Jung says, that the whole piece day to day, how do we live with the imagination? I have an example of this. It's really great how the psyche plays with this. And maybe this will be the last thing I say. I don't know, Freddie, probably. Um, Once I was, Uh, had a dream uh, that was perfect and it talks right to this. Uh, The dream was I was on my little ranch in new mexico my humble little abode uh, and i was walking around in the dream doing the various things that i normally do whether it would be taking out the trash dealing with my horses whatever it was dishes whatever and the dream voice said monica whether you know it or not every and actually she said it the other way around um everything you do all day long is done under this dome of unity uh and and it showed you know i couldn't look up and i could see you know a mystical field of uh, that was a dome shape that had color and light in it. And the whole my funky little farm was sitting underneath this thing. But the point of the dream voice said, everything you do all day long is done under the dome of this, whether you know it or not. You see, that's the dream saying. You cannot know, you cannot know the mystical dimensions But they're here and to be up to consciousness to choose like what when I woke up with that dream, it's like, well, the last thing I want to do is go through my ordinary life, not tuning into the field, not tuning into, you know, the field that uh, this this dome, which had a feeling of wholeness, a feeling of unity, you know, so something in the psyche wants us to wake up to the fact that we can choose to live with these healing fields every day in our ordinariness in the daily life daily life reality and also that everything we do all day long uh is part of the offering You're getting conscious inside everything we do makes everything we do part of a prayer in a way it's an offering to the unconscious no matter what we're doing mm. we can go further on that uh, in a very deep way but i know we're at the end
1: well Monica, it reminds me of the zen uh I I call them jokes, but of course they aren't jokes, but it's uh, the Zen saying, the Zen story about the master who was asked, you know, for the umpteenth time, my student, what is the path to enlightenment? Master, master. And he said, "Um, have you cleaned your cup? And he he said, yes, master. Yes, go and clean it again. And (laughs) the student keeps coming back, but okay, I've cleaned my cup, master. Now tell me, what is the route to enlightenment? He says, go and clean your cup again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there it, is. there it, is. And it
1: just goes on like that in true Zen style. It doesn't go anywhere. It just, it just yeah. repeats chop wood,
0: that. Her, chop wood, carry water, present in all we're doing. But that all we're doing is sacred somehow. See, this is a return to a sense of deep meaning and the value. By sacred, I mean the deep value of every life and everything we do all day long. Something in the psyche wants the human being to know this place of value to everything we do all day long. Deep soulful value. Hmm. So that's something the ego doesn't know, especially in this modern world, we're caught up in something very strange, but we can, we can step out of that and have lives that are different. Hmm. We can choose alternate lifestyles that allow room for this.
1: Well, it does come up every now and then, um, particularly in relation to the, to the question of meaning this, this word sacred. And it's not something that we're going to go into too much detail on, on the show, because it's such a personal thing, isn't it? But meaning uh, as a subjective function of consciousness, unfortunately, comes up a lot, and I think we're definitely going to going to need another show to talk about this, Monica. It's been an absolute joy to get an insight into what that many years of this kind of practice and this kind of uh, this kind of therapy can 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 offer to us as individuals. Not necessarily for anybody who's sick or or ill. I think you know the taboos of mental health are clearing away and what would have been called psychotic uh not long ago is now being understood as a, a, a the 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 unconscious presenting itself for our for our examination Absolutely. so monica thank you so much you've made it so fun so accessible your stories are so wonderful and thank you for all the quotes and um i think we may have to speak again in further series on on, on quite a few topics
0: It's so good to meet you and to feel the vision behind your work and how you're bringing this out to so many people. And this is the beauty of the archetype that's pressing itself into our world through technology. You've aligned with that, your own process, your life, your intelligence. I really appreciate who you are and you're inviting me. And I look forward to other shows you do and, and certainly coming back with you anytime.
1: Well, that's very, very kind of you. Dr. Monica Wickman. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you.